five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. Today on SpaceQ, I'll be talking with Bob Richards, co-founder and CEO of Moon Express. Bob is well known within the space community, having been a co-founder of the Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, the Space Generation Foundation, the International Space University, and Singularity University. Before founding Moon Express, Bob was also a founder of Odyssey Moon in 2006, the first registered team in the Google Lunar X Prize. Bob's past experience, including with Odyssey Moon, led him to move to the U.S. to pursue his dream of creating a commercial space company dedicated to opening up the moon's resources to benefit humanity. In 2010, Moon Express was created, and Bob's new company entered the Google Lunar X Prize. They subsequently won $1.25 million in milestone prizes, including the $1 million landing prize and $250,000 for the imaging prize. Welcome, Bob, to the SpaceQ Podcast. Hi, Mark. I'm very glad to be here. So I'm going to dive right into this. Um, before we get into this new family of MX vehicles that you recently announced, um, what's the state of the development of the MX-1 Scout spacecraft, which is the basis for the new uh, family of MX vehicles? And when do you hope to have it ready for, for launch? So, Mark, in the, uh, we're developing a core propulsion system, as you've identified. The, the MX-1 becomes a modular system that, uh, that can lead to modular scaled spacecraft that can do much more than one system can. And, you know, we, we're, we're modeled after Silicon Valley, so it, it's, you can look on it as our minimum viable product. And one of the one of the challenges with any spacecraft, as you know, is that there's really no way. <laughs> the first time it actually has to work in the environment it's intended to work in is actually in space. So the the vehicle itself has a number of components that um, uh, with a core propulsion system that is currently um, in test. So we've manufactured actually 3D printed um, uh, two two engines uh, with two more on the on the way. Uh, those engines are really the heart and soul of the spacecraft and uh, they will be tested over the coming weeks at our range down here at Cape Canaveral. And the, uh, some of the components are also in test right now at various NASA facilities. So the components are, are either underway in test or about to be fabricated, and the vehicle itself will begin its sort of its assembly life, its integration life, uh, this coming September here at uh, our integration facilities at Cape Canaveral. And then after integration, uh, you'll obviously do some more testing. Um, and then, then it has a long journey to New Zealand, which will likely occur uh, October, November in the time frame. And, and as you know, uh, Mark, we've, uh, uh, we're, uh, we're watching, as many people are, the progress of our friends at Rocket Lab, uh, who had their first test launch last month. And I'm sure this is one of your questions that I I won't go too far into because you probably want to talk about it in depth. But part of this is is timing um, our vehicle in order to to meet, you know, converge with the rocket that has to blast it into orbit. So uh, we're we have all fingers crossed uh, for the end of this year. Rocket Lab is working very very hard. We have a lot of work ahead of us as well in our own engineering team to meet that schedule. Okay, so we'll get back to Rocket Lab in, in, in a second. Um, how about we talk about this new modular architecture that you've created, this MX family of robotics explorers. Tell me about the new classes and, and the thinking behind the architecture. So one, of the, one of the big challenges and expenses with space exploration, particularly planetary exploration, is the vehicles are, are, are tend to be snowflakes. They t- tend to be custom designed around a specific purpose. And that's, uh, that, that's what drives the cost up. And so what we're trying to do is introduce uh, some of the modularity um, and uh, common uh, production practices to spacecraft that have routinely been uh, applied to uh, terrestrial technologies like cars and are starting to be 
uh, uh, developed for launch vehicles. Uh, SpaceX is a great example of that, of how they've come up with a, a very sleek uh, uh, production facility. Uh, and we want to see the same thing for spacecraft. And, and by doing that, by building your spacecraft on common components uh, that are modular and scalable, uh, you can really collapse the cost of larger spacecraft. So by beginning with our single module, we call it the MX-1, and um, we've embraced the, the kind of the naming convention that SpaceX has adopted where the number represents the number of engines. So the very first SpaceX rocket was the Falcon 1 with one engine. Uh, they had planned a Falcon 5 with five, but now we all know the Falcon 9, which is nine engines. So our family of vehicles uh, follows a very similar pattern, actually. Our MX-1 with a singular engine uh, is, is, is sized so it can fit in the shroud of our uh, rocket lab uh, launcher called the Electron. And in an expanded mode, uh, it can be, uh, we, can, we can couple two of them together. So you get a stacked, you, you get the idea of staging applied to spacecraft that uh, the way that rockets get into from Earth's surface into space is they stage themselves. That's just a necessary thing you have to do because of the rocket equation. Uh, but by staging vehicles in space, you can also get a lot more performance. So our MX-2 system, uh, our two MX-1 stacked on top of each other. And those can fit uh, all of these uh, systems that I'm describing have been designed to be compatible with either existing or emerging launch providers. From the MX-2, uh, we, uh, which is uh, a system that's you know one on top of the other, so it's kind of tall and thin, we go to a platform lander we call the MX-5 that obviously has five propulsion modules. Uh, it has a three-meter, three uh, so about a nine-foot, uh, three-meter uh, diameter uh, platform deck, whereas the MX-1 itself has about a one-meter deck. The MX-5 has a three-meter deck. And, and as a platform, uh, it's really a workhorse that can work well in cislunar space, so between Earth orbit and lunar orbit. It can also be a lander, but each of these vehicles have their own strengths, and we're really playing to uh, the future of exploration as we are predicting it, where uh, many applications will be emerging for different types of vehicles. The, the, the king of our family of vehicles is called the MX-9. Uh, it's a, it's a four-meter diameter um, uh, platform lander that uh, has nine propulsion modules, uh, and it's uh, with four meters, uh, it fits inside the shroud of a Falcon 9 or, or a similar vehicle, and uh, it has an, an amazing amount of capability. It could deliver, for instance, 500 kilograms to the surface of the moon uh, of payload. Uh, we've also embraced the idea of sample return, which is one of the big goals of Moon Express, is not just to boldly go to the moon, but boldly return something from the moon. So with the MX-9, as well as the MX-5, uh, the center propulsion module could also be swapped out for an active spacecraft. So if you can imagine the MX-1 with a cluster of modules around it, uh, that spacecraft landed on the moon or any surface or in space could launch from either the MX-5 or MX-9 platform, which become launch pads. So from the surface of the moon with a delivered MX-9 system, we could uh, gather samples, put it into the uh, sample uh, uh, a canister of a of an MX-1 that's embedded, fully fueled in the MX-9, and take off from the moon and bring those samples back to Earth. Now, when you say samples, um, how much uh, samples would you be able to bring back? Well, I'm always optimistic, but uh, engineering, you know, the <laughs> uh, let's tens of kilograms. I think is a very conservative number for each each return vehicle could bring tens of kilograms back, and they would be coming back uh, when they get launched off the moon. They're actually in a return capsule that is very Apollo-like uh, in shape, although it's of course very small. But it does a, a, a ballistic uh, atmospheric reentry and a parachute, and eventually, likely a splashdown. Uh, where those tens of kilograms of, uh, of lunar rocks and dust uh, will be uh, retrieved. And uh, some of it will be provided for scientific research, but will also commoditize uh, the majority of it. So, uh, you know, you're not doing this uh, uh, as a nonprofit. Um, 
let's say you got 20 kilograms of samples and you gave half of it away to the scientific community and you sold half of it to uh, on, on the open market. What do you think that's worth? Can can you guess on that or? We could we could have a fun we could have a, a bet on this. Mark. I mean, we just had the I, auction last you know, week, right? For other beef, that's right. Two two million bucks, basically, for a little bit of dust. Uh, but that was a very special little bit of dust, right? It was a it was a bag that uh, Neil Armstrong himself had had on the moon. There's there are a few remnants of dust particles, but and it sold for I think it was one point eight million dollars US. Yeah. Um, so I think that I think that tells us that uh, that special things from the moon in particular are could be very very valuable, and and although I don't think there's an infinite demand uh, for lunar dust and lunar rocks, I think the very first lunar dust and rocks that are the very first ones to be privately owned, because right now only governments, uh, until this particular sale actually, only governments are actually allowed. Uh, not allowed, but only governments own moon rocks. They don't like you and I to own them, I, and I'd like to change that. So another another market data point is to look into collectors, and and there's a uh, a market for lunar meteorites. That uh, these are moon rocks that nature has blasted off the moon in some event and have found their way to the surface of the Earth, and and collectors buy them up, and you can you can see what the prices are, which are uh, you know, in 1992, um, a, uh, there was a, uh, a few grams uh, uh, were so I think it was, again, at Sotheby's. And, and these things are, are, if you do the math, it's a ridiculous amount of, of potential economics with, let's say, a kilogram of, of moon rock that comes directly from the moon at the prices that it gets sold for in, in the realm of grams turns out to be billions of dollars. Well, you know that that's not going to be the case, of course, because you have to allow for market saturation and and. But I think it's I think it's hundreds of millions. I think I think there's a substantial amount of value in kilograms from the moon. Let, let's say it wasn't hundreds of millions, but tens of million. Would that still be? Uh, and it's still, it's still worthwhile. worthwhile. Okay, so. Uh, we've established that if you bring something back, uh, that there's a market for it and that it could be worth tens of millions or maybe even hundreds of millions, uh, which would certainly make it a, a, a good uh, business case. Um, but uh, before you actually get to the moon, you actually need to obviously uh, finish uh, production of uh, your first uh rocket or, or first spacecraft uh, and you have to get it uh, launched and and at the moment uh, from what I understand the only provider that you actually have a signed agreement with is a multi-year agreement with rocket um, they've actually uh, you know as you said earlier they've conducted their first test launch uh, it was successful to the most part uh, the one thing is that they had ha- they had hoped to reach orbit but it didn't reach orbit and they're you know they're looking at the data Right now, and and they're looking to uh, to get back to launching uh, uh, late summer or early fall. So uh, they are behind schedule. And I did take a look at their manifest, and it looks like that there are three flights scheduled ahead of yours. So um, with three flights scheduled ahead of yours. Um, uh, I have two questions with that. Isn't it reasonable to expect that your launch will slip into 2018? Um, just because we're talking about a new company here and they just finally got something launched. And secondly, if it does launch in, uh, slip into 2018, do you have a, a backup options that would allow you to, um, uh, you know, still compete for the Google, uh, Google Lunar X prize? Ah, okay. I see. Okay. So, so there's a lot in that, uh, Mark. Let me address uh, those. <laughs> there's a lot in that. So let me address a number of things. One, the Rocket Lab, uh, as you mentioned, had their first test launch uh, in May. I was one of the. I was lucky to be able to watch it live on a on a live uh, webcast. Uh, even though it wasn't broadcast, you can now see the see the video, and it's. As far as the first rocket launch goes by a brand new company, I would argue that it obtained the, the, the most amount of success of any first launch that I've ever seen. Uh, it was uh, remarkably solid through its uh, first stage burn, uh, first stage separation, second stage burn began, fairing separation, all extremely solid. 
And then there was an anomaly uh, partway into the second stage burn where the uh, the flight was terminated. And as you as you mentioned, we're we're all still waiting for the data of what actually happened. But it appeared very solid up until that point. Uh, so, solid enough that I have I've always had great confidence in Rocket Lab and and Peter Beck, the founder, and and the whole team. They're an amazing team, and they'll have this operational this vehicle operational um, uh, extremely quickly. I'm pretty sure. You mentioned that we there are three uh, ahead of us in line. I haven't actually looked at the manifest, but I think what you mean is three after their test launches, right? Um, so actually, I think uh, two test launch two test launches, and then there's a launch for NASA, and then yours. Oh, I should look back at that manifest. I, so <laughs> I looked it up last week. I, I could be wrong, but I was pretty sure that I saw two, two, two test flights. Then, uh, uh, then the NASA flight, uh, which is actually scheduled uh, according to a uh, document that I came across from NASA for November. So uh, yours would be after that. Right. So it's absolutely possible that Rocket Lab uh, could. Uh, uh, Change its manifest sequence, uh, uh, Mark, and uh, and and I know that they want to, like all companies do, accommodate uh, customers that are in a hurry. Um, we are we are in a hurry only because of one customer, the Google Enterprise that that you mentioned, um, does have uh, a uh, a a need to. Uh, the, the, the rules currently say that everybody needs to launch. Everybody who's still competing, all four mission teams, uh, five teams uh, in total, uh, need to launch uh, their their Google Enterprise attempt by the end of this year. Uh, that doesn't mean win it by the end of this year. That means launch it, and then there's different travel times uh, allowed uh, to the moon. But uh, other than the Google Lunar X Prize, Mark, uh, you know, we're we're in a hurry because we want to get the market, but we're we're not in a we're not in a panic per se. Uh, the uh, as a business, uh, we're in this for the long term, and 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 we 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 absolutely love the Google Lunar X Prize, and and are of course eager to. to well, that, that's leading into my my follow on questions. <laughs> Uh-huh. But, but I- sure. Well, which I which I won't be able to speculate <laughs> on, and I can predict that question already. Um, I, listen, the, we, we have a number of customers on our maiden mission manifest. We're in the business of transportation to the moon. Uh, we want to go when it makes sense to go, and when our customers want us to go. We want to satisfy our customers. We want to bring in revenue. We want to transition from an investment-driven company to a revenue-driven company as quickly as we can. That being said. Um, Google is very important to us, as is all our as are all our customers. Um, it's uh, it's a lot of money. They're offering a, a twenty million dollar uh, grand prize uh, to launch a robot on the moon, uh, provide mobility of at least five hundred meters, and send back uh, images and video from where you land and from five hundred at least five hundred meters away. And then there's some bonus prizes, and and there's a lot of money there. Uh, uh, so of course we don't want to leave anything on the table. Um, nor, you know, to answer your other question, there is no, uh, even though Moon Express is launcher agnostic, meaning um, we look at rockets as an emerging, as an emerging commodity and, you know, any, any Uber rocket that's uh, going our way for the right price, we'd love to have a ride. Uh, rocket Lab, uh, you know, kind of completely uh, disrupted the equation of launch when they introduced the Electron for such a uh, remarkably low price. Um, you, know, you can go on a, I think they're still selling it for 4.9 million. If you go on the website, you can put it in your rocket, your uh, shopping cart. And uh, as you mentioned, we bought multiple. Uh, we've contracted for up to five, uh, three with an option for two more. And, and it, but it's, it wasn't unheard of. Uh, you'll probably remember when SpaceX first started, they were pricing the uh, the the Falcon One, which is not unlike the Electron, I think for something like six point nine million, so you know a lot less than ten. So, so and, and it was also question, a, a much larger is, rocket. It was a much larger rocket. Thanks for that compare. I couldn't re- really remember it, so it's a much larger rocket. And and uh, but the pricing was in the realm of a demand curve that uh, that Rocket Lab and a number of emergent launch companies are after for small launches, for small uh, small spacecraft to low Earth orbit. 
So from our perspective, we're looking for rockets that take us to space. Uh, uh, the industry as we, as it is today, is in a is in a, a point of it's at a cost, but it's at a point of transformation uh, over the course of years. It's not instant, but in a point of transformation, uh, rockets from an era of uh, low frequency, high cost to low cost abundance. And, and a lot of people are betting on that low cost abundance of rocket launches, including Moon Express for the cost to continue to come down. But the, the industry, if you look across it today, is, it's not easy to buy a rocket. Uh, you can't just say, I want to fly to the moon or anywhere uh, next Tuesday. Uh, rockets have long lead times and, and they're typically very expensive. So uh, we do not have any, uh, our first plan is to launch on a rocket lab electron. And we do not currently have a backup plan, certainly not for this year, although if you look ahead to the future, uh, of course, we're wishing Rocket Lab complete success and have complete confidence they'll be successful as a company. But if you look forward a year or more, uh, there are other companies coming online that we could utilize as well. Right. So with Rocket Lab itself, um, uh, like you said, uh, on their website, they still cite the price of $4.9 million to orbit. Um, and you, like you said, you, you signed a, um, a contract for three and then option for two. Uh, <laughs> I have two questions with that. Um, did you get a, a discount for the multiple launch? And did, they, or did, and did they charge you more? Because, well, you're actually not going to orbit, you're going to the moon. Well, actually, no matter where we're going, the rocket only takes you to a certain destination, right? So it's all the same to yeah. the rocket. The, uh, the rocket provider uh, lets us off in low Earth orbit, and depending on which rocket you're on, you get left, let off in different places. Um, if you go on a big rocket, you get let off closer to the moon, and that, that helps, a bigger boost. So uh, we, uh, I, I, that's an interesting question. Did we pay more or did we pay less? And I don't, I don't think I'm going to talk about that. <laughs> I had to try. <laughs> of course you did. Uh, you can look up what NASA paid. I think that's public. Oh, there you go. And, uh, yeah. So, um, they paid more. Uh, once you do get to orbit, what's the flight time f- uh, for you to, mo- to the moon? Oh, well, so, so with the, so a different, of course it changes with each launcher, but I think we're talking about a launch from yeah. an electron, which takes it up to a low Earth orbit, uh, I think about 200 uh, kilometers uh, circling the Earth. So not too different from where the space station is. That's where we will be. When we're let off, our spacecraft will separate from the launch vehicle. It will wake up, and uh, it's you know as it opens its eyes, it'll be orbiting the Earth. Uh, we'll probably do uh, not more than, not m- many orbits on Earth, maybe one. Uh, Launching from New Zealand eastward, as you can imagine, is uh, is all things all things being equal. It's not where you would choose to launch to the moon, but uh, it all things aren't equal because we've got Rocket Lab, we've got an amazing price, we've got an amazing team. So everything, um, uh, let's say, trumps the physics. But launching from New Zealand, um, we're going to have to uh, orbit um, the Earth about once. And then we will do uh, the we our, our rocket our our, our MX1 spacecraft will uh, light up its main engine, uh, do a translunar burn uh, for quite a long time, about 20 minutes, maybe maybe more. That first burn and that head toward the moon. It'll be about a four to five day transit time for us. And the same uh, the same engine. That engine is a restartable engine. I I haven't mentioned, but I but it's a hydrogen peroxide and uh, RP-1, which is a, a, kerosene, a rocket-grade kerosene uh, fuel, and, and, and uh, uh, when I say hydrogen peroxide, H2O2, hydrogen peroxide oxidizer. Uh, and that, that engine will also do the braking burn, uh, which means, you know, the good news is it's only going to take four or five days, but you're going really fast, and you have to slow down in order for the moon to be able to capture you in orbit. And once, uh, once we're captured in orbit about the moon, um, depending on when we've arrived, uh, our goal is to, once we've landed on the moon, to land uh, as early in the morning, uh, the lunar morning, as possible, so the sun is rising. Uh, the sun will uh, will be an equatorial landing site, so uh, the sun will be in the sky for you know no more than up to two weeks, which is a lunar daylight. 
So uh, we will we will loiter in orbit for any t- anything from hours to days, uh, depending on when we've arrived. Uh, and and what uh, you know, we might even have some customers with us who like being in orbit. Might might pay us to to do some things in orbit, which would be good. But when we uh, when we finally descend, uh, Mark, it will be a that will be a very rapid nail biting uh, few minutes. So. Uh, between the time we do a, a, our initial descent burn and start heading in, heading toward the lunar surface, and the time we hit the retro rockets and land and, and you know touch the moon like a feather, <laughs> which is what we hope we'll do, uh, that will only that'll be the that will happen in less than half an hour. So that will be a very sort of exciting event when we determine what it's time to go in and, and try the landing. So all in all, five days, five six days. Yeah, that landing will be tense, I'm sure. <laughs> First time always is, well. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll remember, Mark, when we, we, we Canadians uh, uh, participated in, uh, on NASA's Phoenix Mars lander mission. And, uh, you, know, la- you know, so I know what it's, the six minutes of terror, as they call it, when you land on Mars, uh, it, you have about six minutes because it's an atmospheric landing. So it takes, you know, it's a prolonged agony. Um, but it's always an exciting time. <laughs> we can't wait for that to happen when we're landing on the moon. Okay, so um, you mentioned the Google Lunar X Prize. Um, you know, the deadline is is the end of this year. Uh, but as we've seen, the deadline has has you know been moved uh, in previous years for various reasons. Uh, do you think that it's possible yeah. that the the deadline might slip again this year? I mean, after all, this is a prize where they actually want somebody to win because they're after an objective. I think that's a really that's the best point, Mark, that you just made. Google. Uh, so, so when you, when we say Google, of course it's the company, but it comes down to primarily Larry and Sergey, uh, who really saw the value in this challenge and stepped up to fund the prize through the X Prize Foundation because they think it's important. They think it's important for a number of reasons. Uh, actually, accomplishing a prize is only one of many things that they consider important. Among them are inspiring, and they have certainly done that over the last 10 years, uh, uh, bring, uh, getting innovation uh, being developed uh, in unlikely places. <laughs> They've certainly accomplished that. Uh, providing a global challenge that uh, crosses cultures and, 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 and international boundaries, and they've certainly done that. So the... Uh, and as long as the uh, there has been uh, genuine, serious effort to win the prize, as 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 you've acknowledged, um, it was uh, it's the the deadline for the prize has has moved forward, and uh, so we can only speculate. Uh, there's been no indication uh, uh, from X Prize or from Google uh, that the the current deadline of the end of this year for launch will change. Uh, so I can't speculate on that, and we're we're just moving forward as fast as we can, uh, presuming that that's the deadline. All right, fair enough. So, Moon Express, you know, I've known you a long time. You know, it's not just about winning the Google Lunar X Prize. Winning the prize would be great because, well, it's twenty million dollars, and you've already won some money from 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 the actual competition. But your your business plan has got uh, greater ambitions. Uh, clearly, accessing the moon's resources is important to to the business plan. And like you said. At the moment, you're a transportation company, but you want to morph that into a company that also also does a resource extraction uh, or exploitation. Uh, I've heard you say water is like the oil of the solar system. How will the exploitation of this resource be funded? And is this, is this the holy grail for establishing a viable commercial industry based on the moon? Well, I, I think the the water on the moon, and maybe we should spend a minute on that because uh, you know, 99 out of a, maybe 999 of a thousand people I talk to don't know that there's water on the moon, Mark. And we and we we as a you know everybody on Earth didn't know it and, until just really the last 10 years, and then in 2011 when NASA you know uh, did the splashdown at the Elcross probe in the South Pole and proved that there was a gusher of water that came up. So the existence of water on the moon, um, the evidence, you know, was was uh, grew over s- several years, uh, but now it's uh, uh, very evident that there are large quantities of water in, in the form of ices, particularly collected at the poles of the moon. 
Um, there's also evidence that there's a hydrosphere on the moon. Actually, water is being created uh, on the moon and, and transporting itself through uh, uh, physics and a process that's not fully understood right now. Um, but what we don't know yet is what form the we know it's it's ices, but we don't know what form the the water is in in the form of ices. Is it a is it a sheet of ice, uh, rock solid? Uh, or diamond solid ice, or is it uh, more like slush that's mixed in with regolith? Or what forms is it in? We just or is it, is it frost? You know, we just don't know, and we we need to find out because that will tell us how uh, how we could possibly uh, 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 harvest uh, the, the ice for water. And I have said that water is like the oil of the solar system because the 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 existence of water is is of course, important for life, the hydrogen and the oxygen um, uh, is the basis of everything that we need to live. Uh, but it's the constituents, hydrogen and oxygen, are also the, the uh, elements that f for rocket fuel. So, so the 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 idea that we can have water uh, outside of the Earth's gravity well uh, completely potentially changes the economics, not just of the other lunar resources, but the entire solar system and transportation throughout. So it, I think it's a remarkable uh, development that there's water in the moon. It, uh, it, 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 it's where our business plan is focused. Uh, and no matter what precious resource you might think could be the, the, the thing that, that the moon becomes known for, whether you love the idea of helium-3 like Jack Schmidt, does from Apollo 17, or you like the idea of uh, rare earth elements, sometimes they're common moon elements, or unobtainium, you know, it's, it's all, it, it only becomes economic and, and, a, and a potential ore with the introduction of the idea of the fuel that could, that could uh, enable its economics to be applied to in-use space, or maybe some of it even back here on Earth. So that's a long yes <laughs> to your proposition that water is the kind of the game changer. And I think the first companies uh, that are able to learn how to uh, find, tap into, harvest, store, provide water will make, you know, they'll be the first trillion dollar companies. And it will it will help transform us as a multi-world species. So, um as a business, um, you know, uh, and being on the moon, um, there are regulations uh, in place at the moment. Um, but last year, uh, your, your company be actually became the first company, uh, commercial company, to receive FAA approval for a commercial mission to the moon. How did this determination come about and, and what does it mean? Sure, and, and uh, you know one of the most common reactions I, I hear about that is, what do you mean? The U.S. thinks, of, why do you need a license to go to the moon? And it, why does the U.S. think it owns the moon to give you a license in the first place? So let's, and, and you did uh, say the FAA license, and let, let me just address that a little bit. Uh, because uh, the, the, the challenge that, uh, that we, 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 the entrepreneurial space community face, is that uh, as we start to look beyond traditional Earth orbit for our business enterprises, uh, there is a complete lack of regulatory legal framework for any business or any activity to occur for the private sector. No, all spacecraft that have left, when I say traditional Earth orbit, I mean in proximity to Earth from low Earth orbit to the geostationary orbit where satellite communications are, uh, the only spacecraft that have ever left traditional Earth orbit and gone elsewhere are government spacecraft. No private spacecraft has ever been um, uh, uh, sent out to another world, uh, and and so there's a complete nobody's nobody's done it yet. So when we uh, uh, approached the U.S. government in, uh, in, in the end of 2015, it was a it was a great time because the, the U.S. had just passed uh, a, a law, the uh, Space Resource Exploration and Utilization Act of 2015, uh, which Obama signed into law around November 26th, I think it was, of 2015. 
and many of us had been involved in the in that that uh, regulation. But that that law basically was a finders keepers law. It was it was recognizing what I argue was an implicit part of the uh, Outer Space Treaty to begin with, and 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 that's an important thing to mention is the Outer Space Treaty is actually a thing. And that's the document, and, and all of this relates back to the Outer Space Treaty, by the way. The Outer Space Treaty, which was developed and, and signed in 1967, with the, the primary authors being the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, was, if you can imagine, a, a, a completely different era, Cold War, um, uh, uh, fears of nuclear annihilation. And, and the document uh, 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 set out the basically the behavior patterns, the rules for behavior for nation states of how we're going to behave in space. And I talked about uh, great things like uh, space is the province of all mankind and, and we'll put no weapons of mass destruction in space and, and no state shall claim any the moon or any celestial body for its own or put any military basis on the moon, all of these great things. But the outer space and the outer space treaty governs to this day the behavior of 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 states in space. So, in 19, I'm sorry, in uh, 2015, when the Space Resources Act was put in place, it also recognized that same law recognized that there was a lack of regulatory framework in the United States that would allow private sector players to actually go and and conduct activities outside of Earth orbit. So the law said, you know, finders keepers, but that's the good news. The bad news is we really don't know how yet we could actually um, approve such missions under the U.S. obligations as a signatory to the Outer Space Treaty. So when when we, Moon Express, uh, approached the U.S. government, um, and when I say we approached the U.S. government, I, I really mean at the State Department and the White House. Uh, were because they're the ones that really State Department has a responsibility for compliance under international treaties. And we asked the question, hey, we kind of like to go to the moon. Um, we have plans to do so. Uh, do you guys have any problem with that? Is there uh, something we need to do to ask permission or what? And they said, well, it sounds like a great idea, but unfortunately, there's actually no way we can say yes to that we being the State Department. So, uh, Mark, this is, a, uh, this is a, long, a long explanation to, you know, what seems a simple question, but, the, but in the United States, uh, the official agency responsible for issuing launch licenses to launch companies, like SpaceX and, and any, any other commercial launch provider, uh, is the, it comes under the transportation uh, department. So FAA, under the transportation department, has a commercial space office, and it's the one that issues commercial launch licenses. So when a commercial launch license is issued, a number of agencies, a dozen, you know, any, anybody with three, let, three or four letters gets to look at that license and, and has an opportunity to weigh in if there's any issues. It's a pretty routine thing. Uh, commercial launch licenses happen all the time, as, as you can imagine. Uh, and the FAA's authority um, for that provision of a commercial launch license actually ends at the moment that the spacecraft exits the launch vehicle. So the problem we were facing is that of, let's say, the dozen agencies, all of whom had a veto right over a launch license, none of them had the singular authority to say yes. Not the FAA, not the State Department, not NASA. Nobody, no, there was no Department of the Moon in the United States. There still isn't. So we were faced, uh, uh, we were the first ones that by necessity uh, blazed the trail uh, through Washington, D.C. to try to find a way to do this. And we came up, uh, there wasn't even a process for the process, so there wasn't even anybody we could actually go to to ask the question, because nobody had a singular authority. So we made up a process. We made up something, we, we could, out of thin air, we made up something called mission approval, which was a proposed framework that we brought to the U.S. government, shared with all of the agencies involved, and said, how would you guys feel if we did all of this, uh, which would include a number of voluntary disclosures about our mission and what we're going to do? Do you think, even though there's not a regulatory framework for you guys to work with, 
do you think collectively, do you think this would be enough for you to look at it and say yes, or at least not say no? And that, uh, that took several months, Mark, uh, in 20, early months of 2016, uh, January through April, until we had enough consensus and people nodding saying this might work, that we actually submitted an application uh, in April of 2016. Uh, we chose to submit it to the FAA, that, but there was, there was nothing that said we had to. We could have submitted it to any agency. We chose to submit it to the FAA, and FAA had a lot of uh, experience processing commercial launch licenses, so we built on an existing process. And it took another three or four months of deliberation uh, between the White House and the State Department and the DOD and FAA and everybody involved in the process, including, you know, in, uh, interacting with us, uh, to the point of July 20th of 2016, when we got our letter from the U.S. government authored by the FAA on behalf of the other agencies, including the State Department, that said, we're happy to say that we're, uh, we, we're approving uh, uh, this uh, mission you proposed um, under uh, the, our obligations of the Outer Space Treaty. Um, so that's the good news. Uh, but the qualification is it's only for you. It's only this one time. and We can't uh, guarantee we could do it again without further authority. So that led to our current conversations with the government, now involving other companies, of hopefully a permanent regulatory framework where this isn't a roulette game, but there's actually a process to find that if you want to go do something outside of Earth orbit, you can do something, apply, and with hopefully a very light regulatory touch, uh, receive the approval to do it, but that's also consistent with the obligations under the Outer Space Treaty. That was a long answer, wasn't it? certainly it? was, but it, it was uh, very clear. Um, so th- th- this okay. goes into my, my, my next question, which is recently the Parliament of Luxembourg ad- adopted a draft law on space resource utilization. So what does uh, this draft regulatory framework mean for the moon, f- uh, for your company, and uh, will it influence uh, regulatory process in the U.S.? So, so I, I, it's the other way. So I think it's great that Luxembourg has come up, and it's the first country outside of the United States uh, to come up with a proactive, declarative statement about how it views and and uh, will handle um, uh, these uh, uh, private missions outside of Earth orbit. So great for Luxembourg. Uh, there are some other countries that are very close to the same. Uh, uh, type of regulatory framework, uh, UAE, uh, as a matter of fact, <laughs> has been working on this uh, for uh, for some time as well, um, Japan, and uh, I'm sure there are others, and I hope this is a trend of countries that want to proactively support entrepreneurial, let's say commercial space activities, it's, it's entrepreneurs that want to do things outside of Earth orbit. Uh, those countries that are able to do this will attract the new companies. So uh, the U.S., uh, I think, uh, it deserves a lot of credit. Um, it, it, it took some heat, I have to say, of uh, this, this decision or this, this, um, our decision uh, to support us and the, and the previous uh, space resource law that was enacted uh, was uh, misperceived in a number of uh, places in the world uh, as as. Uh, something that was a negative, whereas I I would I would argue that the U.S. was actually the only country back then, and now added add to that Luxembourg and the others that are working on their own rules to proactively want to be compliant with the Outer Space Treaty by putting something in place that satisfies the treaty's requirements of authorization and supervision of activities that emanate from those domains into outer space. So. I think we're on a we're seeing a great trend here, Mark. Of um, and it's and it's it's a, it's an important conversation. It's not going to be a short conversation. It involves a lot of, as you can imagine, not just international po- politics but socioeconomic belief systems. Uh, and uh, and it's it's not going to be an easy path. But I, I applaud Luxembourg. I certainly applaud the United States and everybody else who's working on similar laws. 
Okay. So let's shift back to the moon here. Uh, last week, uh, you announced a development contract from uh, the International Lunar Observatory to develop advanced landing technologies supporting their mission of delivering the observatory to the south pole of the moon in 2019. Tell me a little bit more about this initiative, and and uh, is that a tough time frame to, to meet uh, by 2019? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Everything in space is hard, of course, uh, Mark, and and we have very aggressive plans. And the International Lunar Observatory Association has been around for some time now, and and I, and I just I think it's just wonderful what they're trying to do. I've been uh, full disclosure. I'm a board member of the ILOA, uh, the International Lunar Observatory Association. Uh, it's the uh, uh, really the dream child of a of a visionary uh, businessman. Uh, educator named Steve Durst from the United States, who has, uh, in the last decade, uh, created a, a, a global following for this idea of a observatory on the surface of the moon that is, uh, let's say, democratic uh, uh, and and uh, provides um, access to uh, vistas uh, through the internet of that things that only a few human beings have ever seen. And the idea of putting an observatory, of observing and communicating, really goes to the roots of what we do um, as humans. And and observatories uh, tend to be placed in remote places. Uh, they tend not to be easy. Uh, they, they tend to be um, uh, gather uh, global and international uh, partnerships uh, for for something that's really wonderful, uh, astronomy. And uh, so I think the International Lunar Observatory is a wonderful example of the types of things we can do together that uh, spans business, uh, science, philanthropy, um, commerce, and technology, and, and, and all of that. So the, we've been contracted by the International Lunar Observatory Association to begin developing the technology, the landing technologies that we will need uh, in 2019 to deliver the uh, uh, the communications equipment with, and observation equipment, which will be uh, 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 certainly an optical uh, component like a telescope, probably a radio uh, dish as well. Whatever the uh, components of the observatory the association decides it wants, we'll be delivering it to the south pole of the moon. And not just anywhere on the south pole of the moon. Uh, the south pole of the moon is very different from what we've seen, you know, let's say from the Apollo uh, videos from back in the 60s near the equator. The south pole of the moon is a very uh, treacherous, well, you can, from a landing perspective, it's very treacherous, but it's, a, it's, a, it's got a beautiful landscape. It has soaring mountains and, and, and crater canyons that would, you know, make the Grand Canyon look like a tributary. It's got an amazing uh, topo- topography down in the South Pole. So our challenge, not only is it a challenge to land anywhere in the South Pole, basically, but we are going to be targeting to land on a peak of eternal light, a peak of eternal light. It's a beautiful, it's a poetic description of certain areas uh, on both the North Pole and the South Pole that are high enough, typically on the peaks of mountains or in the rims of large craters, where the sun almost always shines. Uh, not unlike if you're at the poles of the earth, the, the, the sun tends to be low in the sky, but it doesn't sometimes dip below the sky. So being on a peak, a peak of eternal light um, has a lot of advantages for continuing energy from solar illumination. And also the, the earth is in the sky continuously, so you have direct communications with earth. So it's a great place to put an observatory. The challenge is, of course, landing. So we are under contract to develop. Uh, one of the things you need to do is you have to be able to land precisely because if you're landing on a you know, peak of a mountain or the rim of a crater, uh, you have to have something that's you know not the size of a football field, but the, uh, almost the size of, I don't know, a parking lot uh, to land, to be able to land. So that's precision landing. And also there are hazards that are really hard to see from orbit uh, when you're landing. So you have to have uh, active hazard avoidance, and and because our spacecraft are robotic spacecraft, there's not enough time to really drive them or steer them from Earth. So they have to have enough onboard uh, intelligence to be able to recognize a hazard 
and steer clear while they're while it's landing, and all that has to happen in just a few seconds. So, so we are underway with the development of these technologies, precision landing and hazard avoidance, and these technologies uh, will be integrated into the ILO lander spacecraft uh, that uh, that will be developed uh, by Moon Express in combination with the payload. Uh, the observatory itself is actually being developed in Canada by a company called Canadensis in Toronto. So it will be a, truly a, 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 an international global effort uh, with a science team from around the world. And is the MX platform the basis for the, for the observatory? It is. It is. Okay. It is. And which uh, which platform uh, ILOA uh, will choose uh, is still will still be dependent on what the ultimate uh, mission financing and goals are, but we could deliver a a, a small observatory to the South Pole using the uh, the one meter uh, deck on the on on an MX one spacecraft. Okay, so I just have a couple of last questions. Uh, I generally ask these of all new space companies that uh, that uh, come on the podcast. Uh, you closed a $20 million uh, Series B round of funding in January of this year. Um, can you tell me how much Moon Express has uh, raised to date? Sure. We've, uh, we've raised over $45 million to date, uh, Mark. And, you know, one of the interest, and, and that's, a, I, you know, we have a great, uh, we're a Silicon Valley style company. So, uh, the, 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 there's a there's a strategy to raising money, which uh, uh, which is done in in financing rounds, and there you know there's different models to financing a company. If you're if you're fortunate uh, to have a Jeff Bezos backing you and you're a Blue Origin, then then that it just happens. One one, one guy's just doing it. Um, uh, SpaceX started with uh, with Elon putting in his fortune at the time, and and then that being augmented by additional private money and ultimately getting government contracts. There's, there's a large, no matter what you're trying to do in space with an exploration company, there's a large financial threshold that you have to surpass. And, and so the capitalization cost of a successful operational business in space is, is quite high. Uh, Moon Express is going at it from a Silicon Valley financing model, which involves uh, bootstrapping yourself, which uh, starts with... Uh, uh, in your early rounds with, uh, let's say, relatively smaller amounts of investments uh, that uh, start build the company. Whether it's a software game or, or, or moonshot, uh, it follows the same sequence of events where you want to raise enough money to prove and use that money to, 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 uh, to progress and, and, uh, and prove that the company is capable of, of, of developing not just the technology, but the company itself. And, and as you progress through the different uh, financing series, as they're called, typically series A, B, C, um, the valuation of the company also rises. So you don't want to raise too much money. Um, you want to stay uh, uh, lean. You want to use capital very efficiently, and you want to give uh, uh, early investors um, a, a valuation increase every time that you raise around. So it's a, it's a, it's it's quite a um, it's quite a a a, 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 a finesse, you know, to to be able to do this along the way. And we've been in existence for six years now. So one of the things I was going to going to mention, Mark, is that uh, it's been interesting to me uh, since I started in this commercial lunar vision uh, back in the you know, 2005, six, seven. I always thought we, uh, you know, with about 60, less than 100 million dollars of capitalization, 60, 70 million, that you could you could finance um, a single moonshot, and uh, and that number hasn't really changed, uh, even though technology has changed radically. The, the 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 it's taken longer than I thought, but but one of the advantages, excuse me, one of the advantages we've had over, particularly in the last five years, uh, is that the rapid increase of exponential technology to radically collapse the cost of the of the hardware that we need to land on the moon uh, has completely changed the economics of a business case so uh, that's if you think of the uh, the industry 
um, uh, what, what CubeSats have done to provide democratized access to low Earth orbit, that's what's going to happen with space exploration. So with the introduction of the MX Explorers that Moon Express has, and I'm sure there'll be others that come up with similar ideas, uh, what we're doing is we're, we're radically collapsing the cost of getting everywhere else. And the financing to do that, because the technology costs come down, uh, the financing costs come down as well to, with, to within the realm of venture capital. But it's still a long way to go. Uh, you know, we're, we're after our, you know, maybe the space equivalent of the four-minute mile, the, the first private landing on the moon. And, and there's a long way between that and, and the vision of harvesting lunar resources that have an economic impact to human, human future. Right? There's a long way. But, but it's the, it's the, it's the uh, mapping the on-ramp uh, with predictable business, not pre- with certainly high-risk business models, but that are possible that, that uh, investors with a tolerance for risk but also get the large-scale vision can buy into. So we're doing well. Um, uh, it, it, it's never easy. And there's still a lot of uh, effort and capital required, but uh, uh, one of the one of the keys of entrepreneurship is rel- relentless conviction and commitment, and uh, we've certainly got that at Moon Express. So you'll probably need to do another series, uh, uh, let's say, C uh, round of funding uh, to get you to where you need to be. Uh, But uh, if things progress the way they are, that uh, you shouldn't have too much trouble. So companies are, are are typically always, you know, growth companies are always raising funds, right? There's there's always raise uh, you raise funds for contingency, you raise funds for growth, you raise funds for acquisition. Uh, it, 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 it's part of your toolkit as 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 an entrepreneurial company. Uh, the key is to transition from one point <laughs> at a, at the earliest possible point from investment based uh, funding to uh, revenue based funding, and that's our goal with Moon Express is to transition hopefully within the next year uh, from a investment uh, based funding to revenue based funding. But that doesn't mean we'll, we won't raise more funds for growth contingency and for the large visions that uh, that we have for exploration. So one last question. Uh, I'd like to ask this of all new space uh, companies, like I say. Uh, how many people are working full-time now at uh, Moon Express? Well, we've got, if you look at the, uh, I guess, the org chart, there's about 30, 25 or 30 people right now. Uh, we're, we're growing fast um, and, well, fast for us. Uh, Relatively, we will be 50 people uh, within the next few months by the end of the year. Uh, and I, I think that's a remarkable number, Mark. Uh, it, it's not 500. Uh, it's not 5,000. You know, mark my words, right? <laughs> so <laughs> five years from now. I think Elon made a comment back, you know, in the early days of SpaceX. He didn't imagine it being more than 500 people or so. And now it's 6,000. But uh, but uh, the remar- remarkable thing is you can look at a band of 50, you know, under 100 people, say 50 people that can, that can do, that can, at- that can dream and attempt to accomplish what only superpowers could do before. And that means uh, it's not because they're super people. Of course, they have to be super committed, but it's because the tools that they have at hand, the, the computation, the, the simulations, the, the ability for rapid uh, prototyping and, and testing and the availability of capital for entrepreneurial risky space ventures. All of this means that we can do amazing things with a relatively small handful of people, dozens, as opposed to the hundreds of thousands it would take uh, only a few decades ago. Well, it certainly sounds like Moon Express Plans for the Moon is making progress. Uh, Being an entrepreneur is not easy, I know. (laughs) Starting a new space company is even harder. Uh, I'd like to thank Bob for being on the Space Cube podcast. I hope you'll consider being on a future show as your plans progress. Thank you very much, Mark. Good luck with the show, and it's always a pleasure talking. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Q Podcast. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca, or you can post them on the website at spaceq.ca, where you'll find an archive of each episode. 
You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter, at Canada in Space. And we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook, at The Space Q. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. I'm also on LinkedIn, at Mark K. Boucher. And if we're connected, you'll get the SpaceQ articles and the podcast notification in your newsfeed. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider rating the show and writing a review if you're so inclined.